If you use the internet on a daily basis, and chances are you do, you probably don't put much thought into cybersecurity. You know, your network connections, the pages you visit, the files you download. You should be thinking about these all the time. Welcome to And Security for All. Your host is Kim Hakem. We're here to help you understand, in general terms, how and why your cybersecurity should be kept in check. Now, here is Kim Hakem. And security for all, Uh, welcome to the show. It's another great day in October here in the Midwest. We have our beautiful fall weather with uh, beautiful leaves. Um, So I hope everyone's enjoying this great month of October, which is also Cybersecurity Awareness Month. I hope everyone is still thinking every day about the threats that we see out there and um, staying on top of those. I was actually talking to a friend of mine this morning and he is not in the industry and he was just telling me about some Amazon scams and there's so many out there. So I hope that everyone out there is not just thinking about October being cybersecurity uh, cyber month. We should be aware of it every second and every day, which is a topic that we're going to talk about today. My guest today is uh, Dr. Nicole Flores. And um, I want to welcome her to the show. She's a founding member of Flipside Security, Polymath, Recognized SME, Threat Intelligence, Mitigation, uh, Compliance, Global Top 100 uh, CISO, and Chief Security Officer list. So welcome to the show, Nicole. Thank you so much for having me, Kim. It's great to be here. Well, um, tell us a little, let's just get started before we dive into our topic today. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got in the industry and some history and how you got to where you are? I'm old. (laughs) (laughs) So I started in the industry back in 1998. I was one of the, okay, this is how old I am. Comdex was a big deal back then. And it was, I was a CIO of a dot com and I had already gotten a lot of experience and also built a lot of relationships within the ethical hacking community. And in our local, you know, because back then we had our local IRC channels and stuff. Um, and from there I left that.com and I wound up founding Elite Development Group. So I was founder and CEO of EDG for nearly 11 years. We were one of the first companies out in Southern California who was doing strictly cybersecurity consulting and compliance. And I literally, yeah, so we were like totally like one of the forerunners. Um, One of my proudest achievements as it relates to being a retired CEO and founder is the careers that I had the incredible um, opportunity to help launch. Um, Some of my team, it was their first jobs out, and now they're at NASA. Um, ben Yen, who is, was my first employee, he's one of the directors over at Apple. Um, we have some other ones that uh, are due jobs that cannot be um, named. 
but <laughs> it was really is i gotta say um we did a lot of good work we were able to help a lot of companies um back in that day we had a lot of issue with hijacking nobody really called the term insider threat hadn't been quite coined yet but what we were seeing is that a lot of like either the, the was called the IT guy, but someone of that sort or an old IT company, they were essentially hijacking and taking over the networks. And so that was one of our big things, how we kind of like built a name for ourselves and also my ability to reverse engineer different viruses and doing the penetration testing. Like we were first to do like honey pots, um, also root kits, like we were experimenting with root kits back in I want to say 2004. So it, we've, um, it, it's been a, a really incredible, incredible tenure. And during that time, I also had the opportunity to serve on the board of directors for the Infraguard organization, which is an FBI uh, private industry partnership. Also, I'm still on the task force for the Secret Service for their electronic crimes. And there's other organizations that I'm heavily involved with where I'm, at least in some informal capacity, still able to provide some advisement. Awesome. Well, can you tell us a little bit about Flip uh, Flip Side Security and what you guys, what your mission is there and how you get that started? I like, so we have a great story, um, and it was kind of like more of those like, the like that the old school type of story where you know two people get together that have known each other for a while and they're like, hey, you know what? We've wanted to do something together for the longest time. Uh, my partner TJ, who is phenomenal, is like the cloud evangelist extraordinaire. Um, he was coming from the cloud side. I was coming in from the security and the compliance side. And we were just sitting at BJ's one day. Um, it's a chain out here in Irvine. And I'm like, hey, you know what? Let's do this. I'm like, okay. And But the whole concept behind it and really what was such a huge draw and, and a passion igniter for us was we were going to tap a lot of our colleagues who had retired out Um but we're seeing what was happening in the industry and seeing, especially on critical infrastructure and just the instability across the geopolitical spectrum, who they didn't want to go in for the corporate job, but they were like, hey, man, put me back in. I, I want to do something. And um, so that's kind of like, that's, that's where it all started. It was like, okay, well, let's get, you know, the best of the best and get them doing what they love. Um, there won't be HR, there won't be like that kind of stuff, but let's just, because there's obviously, and just frighteningly so, a, we're in a very dangerous world right now. And it was m- much, it's much more so than it was 10, 15 years ago. So with everything going on in today's world, today's day, you know, yesterday, what are some of the biggest challenges that you guys are um finding yourself in with, with flip side security? I would say definitely the nation state uh, sponsored attacks. Um, 
that is by far the most I, I've never seen it this aggressive. I mean, it's bad, and I and I've seen things that you know are were obviously couldn't be talked about at the time, but the overt nature of everything now, and then with the ransomware, um, and the backing that a lot of these APTs have, and the fact that there's nothing off limits. Um, last week they were talking about killware. Now. Uh, it's not necessarily common knowledge, but Dick Cheney had a pacemaker and they had to change it out and do some modifications because they were concerned that it was vulnerable to attack. That was back then. But Killware has gone on and has just, I don't want to use the term mutated, but it is now what we're seeing is going to a So that kind of brings us into what we're going to talk about today with geopolitics and threat, you know, just current threats out there. Um, can you enlighten our audience on that topic and talking about, you know, a little more about the geopolitics and, you know, how you're involved in that? Well, so. There was a huge development um, earlier this year that, interestingly enough, didn't get very much coverage. And it's a shame that it didn't because this was such a point. It was so huge. Um, when NATO issued that letter to Beijing, when all of the five eyes came together in support of the United States. This is what kind of what happened after colonial. And literally, and here's what was so interesting. They did not use the usual like diplomatic cables or a lot of them were just doing regular press releases like you would do off of AP or, or Reuters. And that essentially was, you know, the shot across the bow. And that moment was such significance because it also indicated to our adversaries that in relation to cyber war, that there is no mandate to return that the aggression in kind. So in terms of like an escalation, if the provocation comes from, from a cyber sector, it could still be retaliated against via more traditional means. So let's break that down a little bit, just because our show is called and security for all. And we do have a lot of people that do tune into the show and some of that stuff, you know, is a little above, you know, people's comprehension. So can you kind of put that like, yeah, like, 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 let's like go to 101. Um, Warfare 101. We're not all a doctor. We're not all a doctor <laughs> like you. So, uh, can you, can you, can you kind of help us understand what you just said? Okay. So, what I said is basically the world collectively, um, the different or countries that the United States has 
intelligence sharing alliances with. They're called the Five Eyes. Them, in addition to the EU, in addition to NATO, all issued a statement specific to Beijing. And especially the NATO one was very, 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 very important because they've never called Beijing out on anything. Like this is the first time in history. And it was essentially saying if you continue this provocation, this will be considered a declaration of war. And how that war may look like is not necessarily, when we say in kind, that's like saying, well, if I get hacked, then I'm going to hack you back. No. That I may use traditional warfare methods all as a form of attacking back. So, um, Rahul uh, Beecher, I hope I didn't mess your name up. Welcome to our show. <laughs> yeah, so uh, Rahul has joined us, and he has a question. He said, um, well, earlier he was talking when you were talking about being old, which I'm right there with you. He said he was born. <laughs> he said he was born in 1998, and yeah. So, and then he said, uh, "What's your take on current cyber geopolitical environment of India and PAC?" It's literally a um, a powder keg. The whole area, especially what's going on in Kashmir. Um, the whole border of China with um, either just, it, it literally, it, and this is what is so terrifying about the situation. In the past, it was general policy to avoid conflict at all costs and take diplomatic means whenever and however possible or engage in strategic strikes where, you know, again, very, very highly specific targets involved, but again, not a full-scale war, conflict. What's going on with Pakistan and India, and especially with the the nuclear arms capability, and now we have a lot of outside support from some bad actors, is I'm very much concerned that we're going to see a potential proxy war. And just somebody is just waiting for the other side to give them an excuse. And I, that's, it, it, it's, the tensions right now, are, it, it's palatable. It, it's the same thing kind of going on in the, the South China Sea. So it's like they're just, everyone's kind of going up to that line and seeing who's going to blink first. And that's a very, very dangerous situation, especially with Pakistan and India and the density of the populations there and the millions of people who will be affected. It will be a human travesty. So what do you think that, um, back to, you know, back to what Rahul was saying is um, 
some of these cyber geopolitical environments, you know, of India and PAC, what do you, where is the United States and what do you think is the best thing the United States is doing? I think the United States, due to the relationship with Modi, has kind of distanced themselves a little bit. Um, right now, in terms of an intelligence focus, an operative focus, we're dealing with China and also with Russia. And North Korea has kind of sort of fallen into the background. Um, the situation with China, and especially with their agreements with Russia, and in terms of cooperation, just like how the United States has cooperative agreements with other countries that if you get attacked, I will protect you. Our adversaries also have similar agreements. These are not like mutually exclusive agreements to only only the um, democratic. <laughs> it's no. This is something. Alliances are made. Lines are being drawn, and it's. I would be more, in, unfortunately, the possibility of a hard conflict happening in India and Pakistan is much more likely than to see a full-blown cyber war between the two of them. I, I just don't see that. Part of it has to do with the infrastructure capabilities that there's only so many targets that, especially uh, from India coming into Pakistan, that they would be able to have any kind of efficacy on. And again, now that we're talking about that was talking about critical infrastructure, one of the things that maybe some of the, the listeners are aware of is like the, the Geneva Convention, which basically said you can't do X, Y, and Z when you engage in global conflict. Well, of course, yes, we can all debate civil. Maybe, you know, that's not always held to the letter. Okay, what, what it, it is what it is. But thing is that there are red lines. And in cyber conflict, those red lines, those off-limits have been completely, there, there is no, nothing off limits. And Colonial was not the best example of that. Uh, that got really hyped in the media. But what was so interesting and what wasn't being talked about, which was extremely important, was Scripps Hospital down in San Diego. Their entire hospital was under a ransomware attack. They were literally having to take patients out via ambulance and reroute them to other local hospitals. Not once did that make the news. There's so <clears throat> there's so many out there that are not going to make the news. That's that's the problem. Um, you know, going back to geopolitics, and let's talk about like uh, you, we're we're talking about you know some war stuff, um, and we go to arms trading, and you know that being big business. What what what's your thoughts on that? 
as it relates to traditional arms? Yeah, traditional okay. arms, especially uh, since we're talking about some of the things going, you know, happening in Pakistan and India. It's a huge issue. And that's where my concern of proxies, a proxy war could occur or a puppet war. And the thing is that who, whomever is sponsoring whom, because these things are, have got to come from somewhere. Um, and that I think is a huge fighting an enemy who isn't really the enemy, who's basically hiding behind the scenes, but financing it is a whole other landscape. And the means of dealing with that are not pretty. War is not pretty. War is horrible. Cyber war is horrible. It's not just about Amazon going down anymore or being inconvenienced. Um, it's about critical infrastructure not being accessible. It's about water facilities. There were five attempts in the past month for water facilities to be, to be infiltrated. And on one of the occasions, they were actually able to change uh, uh, the, the chemical makeup, basically what they used for it to, to clean the water. And it, it was actually changed. So it's what's going on. And then with the hospitals, again, you know, to, to bring up what happened in Scripps, that was very upsetting for me. I was, you know, and again, this is in, there's more, there's a lot more coming. Um, vigilance is critical. Uh, support in terms of geopolitical conflict and how we could be supportive of others. Like my family's from Greece. Um, and, you know, they tell me kind of, you know, every, every different country has like, you know, some issues, but there are some hotbeds right now in the world that if a full on full scale conflict occurred, we could easily see a World War III in our generation. Yeah, I agree. And Rahul, he said, as a beginner in cybersecurity, how should one defend against cyber attacks on their respective countries? That's an outstanding question. Um, and that's a lot of it has to do with career choice. Um, I would highly, highly recommend that if someone, if that's their area, like I, uh, I graduated from one of the schools one of the I graduated from um, was an adjunct at the Naval Academy, and I have my degree, one of my degrees in asymmetric warfare. Now, obviously, that's not going to be the most practical um, the experience for the sort of corporate America, but I, I've got that stuff for too. But again, looking to serve. There's a lot of great NGOs out there. Um, also, federal law enforcement. 
the intelligence agencies are all actively recruiting. If you're a student right now and that this is something that you would possibly want to consider as a career, both the CIA, FBI, DIA, and several others have summer internship programs. So just to get an idea of what it's like, because again, a lot of time the only pe- the only experience or perspective that most individuals have of these different intelligence agencies is what they see on TV. So it's to actually be in that environment and to be around like-minded individuals and we like-minded meaning people who deeply, deeply care about other people and protecting other people and by whatever means necessary. And you're going to see that by far in terms of you want to have the biggest impact as it relates to geopolitical affairs and helping to bring or to mitigate or take some of the fire out of what we're seeing of escalation, especially on the cyber war side, then I would highly recommend that. And anyone can, if you want to email me or connect with me on LinkedIn, I'm happy to send you a couple, uh, link to a couple different programs. But I would absolutely 110% recommend that. So going back to geopolitics, how do you, how would just, you know, this is, this is your profession. This is, you know, this is what you've studied on. But for those of us that can't even wrap our head around um, other international politics and, you know, trying to figure out, you know, who the peaceful countries are and who, you know, you were talking about, you know, trying that we may go to World War Three. How do we even understand that? And how do we wrap our head around that? And understanding geopolitics and and how that relates to other countries and their politics. And how does that relate to us personally? How does that personally yeah. our lives? And I'll, I'll start with the, the latter first. We are personally affected when our identities are stolen. We're personally affected when our corporations are hacked or our military plans, like the F-35, are stolen. That espionage and sabotage are not just things that happen during the night. That there are real-world consequences that affect individuals on a daily basis. Our, our payment systems are all interconnected. And so whenever you're seeing, you know, and, and let me kind of backtrack here for a second. A lot of it too is where do you get your information? I think that's very important as both a doctor and as a subject matter expert in threat intelligence, OSINT, and asymmetric warfare, I am literally pathologically objective. So I am like very, when I, when I read something, when I look at something, I look at it from a, an objective standpoint. I don't go in with a preconceived notion. I avoid um, certain news channels that 
are only just spewing hyperbole and political nonsense. They're actually not talking about facts. And that's really what it comes down to is that is everything always black and white? Rarely. There's a lot of different shades of gray. But still, there is this, this definition. And it's at the same time that barrier to entry to understand these type of, I mean, this is, it is highly, highly complicated. It's extremely nuanced. Um, one of the things that caught my attention was there was this new um, movement about hacking back an offensive security. And I, I looked at that, and it was basically saying, well, you know, if my, you know, I'm, you know, corporation XYZ, if I get hacked, then I have every right to defend myself and hack back. And I'm of the particular school of thought that that is extremely dangerous and not a good idea because you don't know who your adversary is. And that is by far one of the most um, sensitive topics right now circulating through cybersecurity because some people are saying, well, I should have a right to defend myself. The problem is that you don't know who you're defending yourself against. That when you're dealing with nation state, you have, this is cyber terrorism. This isn't, you know, your nephew in a basement who's, you know, on the computer trying different stuff. No, you are, could possibly be attacked or trying to, or trying to attack a military installation in another country. And it's in our industry, knowledge is everything. Factual knowledge is everything, but also the ability to apply that knowledge and the understanding of all the different nuances and variables involved are of critical, critical nature. So that is one area that um, I've, again, this is my, my sentiments on it, that I do not believe that we should be advocating for private citizens or corporations to, to hack back. Well, going back to the news, I mean, that is the biggest place where, you know, we're going to get tons of miss information oh my god so when you talk about yeah (laughs) yeah there's several shades of gray as you said so i I don't think that stupid sorry i I mean so you know it's just not practical for us to gather our information from the media it's ridiculous and and really this is where i i have very particular i'm very passionate about this subject because I've literally have watched the news and have had the actual background knowledge of the event, knew exactly what happened, and saw it completely misrepresented. And much earlier on in my career, when I was a little bit, you know, a little bit more naive, like I was just a shock. How could you do? They're lying. And then obviously, you know, it's 
you know, society progress, it's ridiculous. At the end of the day, um, there are some trusted sources, but there's a huge difference between an opinion-based show that is trying to basically give ratings or, you know, impassion their viewers, which also helps with, again, there's always that monetary incentive versus a show that is facts. Like, a, like it's probably too late for most people in the U.S., but a lot of nights, um, at least two or three nights a week, I usually do have to pull 20, like, an all-nighter. And I turn on, I either watch BBC um, or CNN, like, at 1 o'clock in the morning, they switch over to the U.K., and you see such a paradigm of, it's incredible, like how everything is being reported. It's really different. There, there's no opinion. It's fact. Um, I also, uh, I speak multiple uh, languages. So I do read like Le Monde. Uh, that's a French paper. Also uh, Der Spiegel, which is German. So, again, I know that's not something that everybody either knows how to do or would have the time, you know, to do it. But getting different world perspectives and seeing and taking learning, I guess this is also just a critical life skill, regardless of what your profession is, is learning how to step back and look outside yourself. And that's where that objectivity comes in. And to really question critical thinking and that ability is is going to go extinct if there isn't some major like major changes. Even in my daughter's school, they they don't they no longer teach critical thinking or critical writing, and I was just in shock. You know, it's we've got to reacquaint the society with how to think, you know, how to form your own opinions, how, you know, if you're going to stand on principle, what is that principle? Why do you believe that? Why is that important? Where did it come from? You know, we talk about having conviction of character. Well, what is the basis of those convictions? Because here's the thing is that, our adversaries and our ability to be mission ready, they're watching us. They are just as aware of the geopolitical environment as we are. So I have to challenge you a little bit when you talk about critical thinking and making your own you know, decisions and standing on your own principle. Don't you think that we're in a place um, with the way politics has gone crazy and, you know, being in our industry and being a business owner, I definitely have to make, make sure I am completely bipartisan and I Absolutely. don't have the right anymore to post what I really think or with this cancel culture that could really affect my career. Yeah, absolutely. And again, there are... <sighs> 
I, I tell you, I absolutely see where you're coming from, and I agree. Um, I think, again, it's a very sensitive time right now. And alienating anyone or any group, when we all need to come together right now is critical. We need solidarity. We don't need more division. And people who are out there, you know, lambasting, you know, everyone for no good reason whatsoever, who have, um, I will not say his name, but one uh, individual who had a, a very popular podcast and YouTube channel, you know, he came and said, oh, well, I didn't think anybody would really believe me or I had a psychotic break, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. Reasons for you psychotic break. But the fact of the matter is, one of the things I think which is a really good um, primer in learning how to think critically is look at the intention behind what is the driving force of this individual's behavior and that's something a lot of people i think is a lot easier for them to do than to necessarily go through the whole process okay i'm going to take a step back i'm going to look at this objectively you know, we're going to try to look at both sides here. Because you know what? Sometimes there are, you know, especially war, there is good and there is evil. Right. Now, and so it's very difficult to have a robust conversation because it's a very complicated conversation where you're having all these different facets, where you're looking at what's happening domestically versus what's happening globally. But the one thing I can assure you is our adversaries are watching. They're watching the division. They're Absolutely. watching the fragmentation, and that's what they want. Absolutely. And John Wang, he said, welcome to the show, John. Thanks for joining oh. us today. Uh, and I'll get back over to Rahul. He has another mm -hmm. question, too. But John said... China has basically fenced off its domestic internet to control data flow, but it can do that without worrying about being voted out of office. How do de democracies like the U.S. balance rights and protecting against serious cyber threats? Okay, so in all fairness, John is my significant other. So I'm going to just... Okay. <laughs> so it's just, uh, yeah. Uh, disclaimer there. So, um, and he's actually an expert in uh, uh, geopolitical affairs, especially with China. Um, the U.S. learned a lot with the Patriot Act. They also, not to say that that mistake won't happen again, but the certain agencies that were involved, uh, a lot of their capability, for better or for worse, has been curtailed. Um, what's happening with Facebook and how that's going to look through the eyes of politicians and how that's going to play out in Congress, that's yet to be seen. Um, I don't foresee any type of major censorship 
happening. Um, but in the event that is, and this is kind of where we had in on January 6th, what happened, where you had insightful actions by others. And it basically, it was building upon itself. Whether or not that was formally organized or not, a lot of the outrage that we're seeing is coming from a organic source. That it's, and in, 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 it really is what has allowed that. And in some ways it's good, but again, you know, a, a, a good a good technology can also, uh, sadly, um, be used for bad. And I don't, what's going on with China, especially as it relates to intelligence gathering, um, what we're seeing, seeing from an espionage and sabotage standpoint, we do know that there are operatives still in the U.S., um, there have already been incidents, some of them made public, uh, but it's it's definitely a power take. And then going back over to Rahul, he said, how much money are countries worldwide spending on cyber defense, defense and attacks? And are they doing enough to protect the data as we know the data is a new currency? That is an excellent question. And I'm going to answer that in a very black and white way. The money being spent as it relates to military modernization is specific to protecting critical infrastructure and for engaging and responding to cyber threats at that military and geopolitical level. How does that affect as individuals or, or cloud, I'm not going to say that there's there's going to be a big trickle down. Not necessarily that private industry is going to have to take up that incentive to secure their, their own assets. That's not to say that the government, uh, especially right now, there was just released by the one of the deputies over at the DOJ talking about, well, you know, if you experience a breach, you know, please, what's stopping you from reaching out to us? Well, and this is something I have a lot of experience in. One of the reasons why companies, private, you know, private entities were reaching out, but in federal government and law enforcement and intelligence, there's certain thresholds. And regardless of how much somebody wants to help and do make a matter right, there's certain thresholds that they have to adhere to. And I particularly did not find that statement by the deputy uh, for the DOJ very helpful, especially at a time like this. Um, but private industry definitely needs to be innovating and constantly. Um, Funding-wise, yes, federal, there are grant opportunities. There are ways through the government that some of this can be done. However, as it relates to 
what's going on like with the different cyber comms. Uh, that is military in nature, and it's to respond and to engage in warfare and to monitor. Well, um, going back to uh, John's question when he was talking about, you know, China fencing off its um, internet, basically, I mean, that's a completely different situation than the United States. I mean, the United States is not going to do anything like that because we're a free country. I mean, well, it's actually, but here's the thing we were talking about how division is a tactic. China knows this. And if they could keep their people in the dark and if they could keep, you know, the dissidents, from speaking out, then that is their, one of their methods of control. They're trying to keep those societal norms in a way that's conducive for, their, for them to continue governing the way they do. So what would be um, some of your last messages before we, you know, we're coming upon the hour that you would want to leave with our viewers as far as what they can do in their space and with this topic. And, you know, we talk about cyber threats. Um, what are some of the things that we can do on daily basis to, to all come together, not have such a division that there is? There are a lot of great organizations out there that, invite both private individuals, um, also people who do this professionally, to come together, a lot of great brainstorming, um, almost like a, like a mini think tank. Get involved with this from an actual operations standpoint or OPSEC. It's about vigilance. It's about knowing your enemy. There are no shortcuts that can be taken in security. A shortcut is a path to exploit. And that also from a continuity and physical security standpoint, do you extend within, you know, what's appropriate for that respective organization, do extensive background checks, especially academia. Academia is having a major, major issue with this right now. So, again, vigilance is right now not an option. So, going back to Rahul, who's just getting new into the cybersecurity industry. He um, is. Yeah, that's awesome. I thought. So what, what, what are some of these organizations? Because I know you've been involved in a lot of these nonprofit organizations. Where would you tell him to go to? Because there's been a lot of talk, you know, about different organizations and what they represent. Where, where do you stand behind him? Where do you feel like is some good groups out there? Um, CISA is doing some good stuff right now that incorporates uh, it, both individuals at large and it's not necessarily exclusive to SMEs or, or several professionals. Also, there's a lot of great grassroots, uh, sounds funny, but meetup. Even CISA uses meetup to, to organize their events. So um, 
I would definitely, it also depends on where you're at or what school you're at. Um, Raul, you know how to get a hold of me. Um, ping me and um, I'll get you a list of some organizations. What about the traditional, you know, or staple organizations out there, you know, like, oh, you know, ISSA and OWASP? Um, OWASP is actually is very, very friendly to new to, to new people. Like, basically, you could come in there saying, you know, I just started my career. I'm even just thinking about my career. OWASP is fantastic. Their meetings are open to all. They have local chapters. Um, ISC Squared, which is one of our governing bodies, um, it depends what chapter. Some meetings are open, some aren't. The only thing with ISC Squared is great for networking, especially if you're a junior and you, you need to get out there and, and meet people or you're looking for a mentor. Um, also, the different, if you're a woman and you want to you know, uh, there's some great, like, uh, let's see, women's security jujitsu. Mm-hmm. Like, really cool, like, yeah. really great groups out there. Um, but there's, look for the local chapters. Now, some of the other ones are exclusively for industry and professionals only. And a lot of them, especially at my level, you have to carry some kind of clearance. Right. And, you know, whenever we do get back to normal times, going to events like RSA, you know, and just going out there, because all those different chapters usually have a presence out there. So that's a great way to kind of, you know, figure out who's doing what, because there's so many associations out there. Yeah, yeah. And here's the thing with RSA, and this is um, especially to Perot, who's just getting into the industry, he's still a student. Um, RSA is not going to be the best place to go network um, if you're a junior. I highly, highly, highly encourage going to the OWASP chapter meetings. And um, even, I guess, it's ISC Squared. That's who does the ISSP, um, all that. Some of them are open. Also, a lot of us who do speaking engagements will often be at these different meetings because that's kind of where we go we learn and we also have the opportunity to you know connect with colleagues we haven't seen and but again everybody is surprisingly approachable and if you have a question because you have especially like oh i'm just going to give a special shout out to Earl. he is so passionate about cybersecurity, and I could see his career at OSIN just taking off and him doing something really phenomenal. We need more people like him. But due to corporate structure and the things, there tends to be a lot of gatekeepers between those who want to get in versus like people like myself who's, who's a CISO or you know uh, your directors go to the local meetings and come up, introduce yourself, even on Twitter or LinkedIn, because trust me, we've, to see that passion and to see that, um, that very, it's, it's so 
refreshing because we need it. We need more roles in our, our industry right now. Um, there's a, a great article came out of Australia about CISA burnout and how this is one of the hardest industries to get into. And that's absolutely true. Um, the barrier to entry is very high. Um, but if, again, it's about networking, relationships, and go to the local chapter meetings. But I can't emphasize that enough. So, Nicole, we are down to about two minutes until we end the show. Can you tell um, everyone where they can find you? What's the best way to get in touch with you in any we, – we have one minute. Any, one last, minute. <laughs> any last parting thoughts? Uh, vigilance. <laughs> um, vigilance is, is critical right now. Um, due diligence, penetration testing, vulnerability. This is not the time to not – be doing testing. This is not the time to scale back. Listen to your CISO. I'll leave those will be my parting words. <laughs> well, those are all good parting words. <laughs> we should have broken more of those down during the show. And then um, again, people can find you on LinkedIn. I assume yes. that's the best place to find you. Well, and I'm actually really good. Um, I'll be honest, email. I'm not because I get so much of it. I'm not the best at always responding. But if you want to actually get in touch with me personally, uh, Twitter okay. is, a, is a great way to do it. Um, not on the flip side security. That's our, our, our corporate account. But you can reach me at Elite Dev Group. Okay, and we will post that because we are running out of time. Dr. Nicole uh, Flores, 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 thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for all of our listeners out there for, um, again, listening to another episode of Ant Security for All. We'll see you next week. Have a safe weekend. Stay safe and stay secure. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for tuning in this week to Let's Talk Business According to Phaedra. Your host, Precious Hanks Carter, will be back next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time. That's noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel as we feature another edition of the program. We'll talk business success again soon. Miss the weekly FutureCon seamless podcast series focusing on the insights and thoughts of chief security officers and industry pioneers making a difference throughout the world. Kim Hakem, CEO of FutureCon Events, and Darren Anderson, CEO and co-founder Next Robotics, host seamless podcast started by a team of entrepreneurs with experience in fields like smart cities, technology, cybersecurity. The result is a series of podcasts unlike anything you've ever heard anywhere. Listen where you get your podcasts, including Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Are you a cybersecurity professional that needs to earn continuing educational hours? 
FutureCon events brings high-level cybersecurity training discovering cutting-edge security approaches, managing risk in the ever-changing threat of the cybersecurity workforce. Cybersecurity is no longer just an IT problem. To learn more about attending a virtual event, go to futureconevents.com or email info at futureconevents.com or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter at FutureConHQ. 